Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. I am stepping into Chris's shoes because Chris Hewitt has buggered off to the city that never sleeps. Joining me instead this week are three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First of all, we have our resident Ghostbusters 2 expert, Nick DeSemlin, whose favourite New York tourist spot is, of course, the Statue of Liberty. He's been known to sit for hours on Liberty Island, gazing up at her magnificent visage with a boombox at his feet, blasting Jackie Wilson's hire while he waits for her to start walking. Has it worked yet? Helen, I'm starting to think this pink slime is not not real, authentic pink slime. Did, didn't you get it from Jocko's House of Big Jokes? I did. I did a mm. very uh, reputable business, but no. Uh, it hasn't started walking yet. It will. Next, we have Phil DeSemlin, who will grudgingly accept New York set films instead of his favourite Azerbaijani fare, but only if they're at least in black and white and have a Woody Allen voiceover. Is this correct? That's correct. Excellent. 100% correct. Hi, Helen. Hello. And last but not least, we have film trivia nut Ali Plum, who will be joining Chris in New York this weekend for an off-off, off-off, off-off-off Broadway performance of their two-man comedy review, What a Fucking Idiots. Hello, Ali. Hello. Can you give us a, a sneak peek of the show, or does Chris have to be here? No, we do have one sketch, and actually if people can tweet in suggestions for similar sketches, essentially they're sketches that are so bad you can't believe they could actually be sketches, but they probably are somewhere. The one I suggested to begin with was farts that sound like they're Scottish. That's right, one more time, farts that sound like they're Scottish. Please send in your sketch suggestions for Ali and Chris. What a fucking idiots. It's a good start. It's a I good think, I start. think you're set there, you don't need much more. What? 90 minutes of that, (laughs) at least. How are ticket sales? Ticket sale going well. Ticket sale. (laughs) Ticket sale is soft. Yeah, we haven't sold out on the ticket sale yet, but we're hopeful. So, Mum, get back to me. (laughs) As ever, we've asked you to send in your questions. As ever, you have obliged. So we're going to start with a question from Twitter from Ross T. Miller. Are there any remakes of foreign language films that you prefer to the original? He says, I prefer the American The Ring to Ringu. Ooh, I've got a spooky story. When I went to Ooh. see The American Ring, yeah. I came out of that screening and looked at my phone and my phone had unlocked itself and the screen was filled with zeros. This Ooh. actually happened. I thought you were going like to say rings. that you looked at your phone and then Sadako crawled out of your phone. That happened too, but it wasn't as weird as the other thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but anyway, uh, that is neither here nor indeed there. I'm going to throw in True Lies. Mm. Good plan. must admit I haven't seen the original La Totale. French movie, but I'm sure it doesn't end with uh, somebody firing Art Malik attached to a rocket or something. That's got to be an answer. I've seen it and it does. You've really? seen La Total? No, I haven't oh, seen La okay. Total. I'm sorry. The trouble is with a lot of these, there are a few that you think might be promising. Ed TV is a remake of a French film as well, but I haven't seen. We haven't seen Louis Nineteenth, King of the Airwaves. And uh, if you have, please write in. I actually, yeah. to my shame, haven't seen the original Three Men and a Baby, so I can't even judge that. But I assume that the one with Tom Selleck in it is the better version. I mean, that just seems logical. Phil, have you seen La Jetée? I have. Do you prefer Twelve Monkeys? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sorry, did I bamboozle you? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a difficult question. Well, I mean, La Jetée is awesome, but it's only 30 minutes long. So I guess you could find a way of justifying liking both of them equally. You must prefer Willie and Phil to Jules Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Willie and Phil. Surely a name like... Jack and John. Jack and Jim, even. Jack I mean, and Jim. How about Some Like It Hot, which was, of course, based on a German... Fanfaren der Liebe. And you'll notice that we're all pronouncing languages that we don't actually speak today, which is exciting. That's a very good shout. That's a very good shout. The Sound of Music, which is based on a different German film. The Trap Family. 
The Trap Family. Did you know that got a sequel, The Trap Family in America? Because they went to America and they, they toured around there. Apparently, uh, Maria was an absolute, you know, monster who, who wielded an iron fist over that entire family, not even hidden in a velvet glove. And, um, and apparently the captain was a complete sweetheart and he was kind of short and diminutive and a bit balding and looked nothing like Christopher Plummer, really. Um, so it's all a tissue of lies. Mm. I think they should apparently. remake The Trap Family Go to America, but with Michael Fassbender. Yes. I'd approve of that. Yes. But I don't see how the original can match the sound of music unless it has more than one animatronic goat. Because uh, Animatronic? Is there an animatronic? It's, an, it's, it's, it's a, a puppet. It's a puppet. It's a okay. ruddy, bloody okay. puppet. Okay. They need to remake the sound of music with animatronic... Now you're talking. ...CG goats. <laughs> and then add dinosaurs. I would be close up, it's puppet. Far away, it's CG. Yeah. What about Sorcerer, the William Freakin remake of Clouseau's Wages of Fear? I'm saying that because I think Chris, Chris were here. He would probably champion it. I don't think it's better than... Sorcerer's great. Yeah, Wages different. of Fear, also great. Both great. Hard to, hard to pick t- between them, but certainly as good. Mm. Insomnia is the same kind of thing. I think the Likewise, and, yeah. and the vanishing. <gasps> oh, <Ooh. laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Have I? Uh, have I? Uh, Do we have a siren we can hit? <laughs> yes, it's oh, the wrong God. siren of wrong. Just because it's got Kiefer Sullivan in it, well, and he can't be killed. It's a great. It's a great movie. It's, it's, great movie. It, it's really not like with the best will in the world. Well, <sighs> the ending of that is pretty. Uh... Next, you'll be telling me Oscar is not as good as the <laughs> film it was based on. The French film Oscar. <laughs> uh, I got a question. Do people prefer the Miyazaki films with the original Japanese voice cast or the American Hollywoodized voice cast? I would say the American Hollywoodized voice cast because a lot of those dubbings have been overseen by the likes of John Lasseter, who has a deep and abiding love of Miyazaki, obviously, and has really championed those films released in the States. So the care and the attention that has been paid to the redubbings of those films is probably equal to what happened in the first place right. with, with the initial voice cast. Gotcha. So I actually don't at all have a problem with that, generally speaking, for the Miyazakis. My stance is, because I reviewed The Wind Rises recently on Blu-ray, and I watched it, I had to make that decision on the Blu-ray, because obviously it has both, and I watched the Japanese voice one, but then I did flick it onto the American voice cast one just to check it out, and it's got Werner Herzog playing this uh, rather nutty German guy it was great. It really improved that scene, just having Werner Herzog saying all this ridiculous dialogue. Scoffing spinach or whatever it is he does. Speaking of Werner Herzog, he was actually one of the people on my list of remakes. Nosferatu. He did a remake, of course, of Nosferatu with Klaus Kinski um, in 1979, I want to say. Now, whether it, it's not as influential, obviously, is, as the original, but in terms of, you know, just as a film to watch. I know what to say here. I've got the answer. Travolti da un insolito destino nell'azzurro mare d'agosto that is a good one is that a film title or are you having that's an episode that's a film title that Top Gun from Italy can anyone guess what the actual film is in the US remake give it to us one more time no <laughs> no it's to do with August Travolti da un insolito destino nell'azzurro oh. mare d'agosto Interstellar no <laughs> it's swept away <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Which is obviously better. Well, that that totally blows my The Departed out of the water. No, I disagree. Although I actually prefer the original, yeah. but a lot of people yeah. would, would put it in this. Infernal Affairs. Anyone yeah. who prefers The Departed to Infernal Affairs must be put on an island with Madonna, frankly. Uh, our next question, also via Twitter, comes from at alleged Starlord. Working in a cafe produces an endless well of weird stories. What are your favourite cafe or diner scenes? 
Mudka's Meat Hut from Emperor's New Groove, where Uzma says, does everything here have to be swimming in gravy? And that sticks in my head when I go to a greasy spoon and it's just slop. And you go, I love it because it's like a greasy spoon. It's all a bit dirty and rubbish. Um, but it always reminds me of that great, great film. Also, we'll probably want to mention the really fun cafe in LA Confidential where so much happiness <laughs> happens and everyone's having a great time milkshakes a couple of beers the diner the um, night owl night owl diner is that right yes I yeah. believe so yeah. yeah that's a good one bit yeah. gory though what about the beginning of Widnell and I with the where they make a sort of fried egg look like the end of the world the whole thing has a a, a desolate air but it's it's a pretty corking opening I think but that's what you're looking for in a diner, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so. An apocalyptic era. There is a good diner in Independence Day. Is there? Yep. Um, when they're doing this in the kind of flying section of it. Uh, and also Pulp Fiction. Have you seen that movie, you guys? Pulp Fiction? Pulp, Pulp Never Fiction heard of it. has a diner sequence. Or two. <laughs> it does. I think there's one or two in the movie Diner. Do you think? Um, <laughs> I vaguely I recall. That? Yeah. Uh, and and David Lynch is is a director who likes to likes his diners. I believe he used to write his early scripts while sitting in a diner, drinking endless milkshakes. But there's a really good scene in Moreland Drive. The diner is named Winkies. Do you remember what happens there? It's a creepy troll monster outside it, and uh, yeah, it kind of comes out of a skip, and it's horrible. <laughs> that's that's one of my favourite scenes. Speaking of horrible, uh, Dumb and Dumber has a diner sequence which is kind of horrible. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, not as horrible as the horriblest scene in that movie, but it's pretty horrible. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, obviously, uh, a, a great example of how to order food and how to react when you really, really like it. I think there's yeah. several diner scenes, but obviously there's What's one the movie with one. all the pies? It's called Waitress. That's Waitress. Waitress. Uh, it's actually on my list of ones uh. to mention, yeah. Um, the, virtually the entire film is set in that diner, um, and the pies are just incredible. Never watch that film on an empty stomach. It is a disastrous decision. Or with Josh Brolin in the room, because he'll, he'll start making pies. At you. That Ooh. sounds like an awesome idea. Not Eating awesome. pies well, while watching Waitress with Josh awesome. Brolin. Not awesome. What's that film with the character called Frankie and the character called Johnny? That's got. That's Is got. that Interstellar? Are you thinking of Frankie and Benny's? I, I, Frankie and Benny's. Yes, that's a great movie. <laughs> Frankie and Benny's. That's got Michelle Pfeiffer plays a waitress in a cafe. There's incongruousness about the American diner where it's sort of a harmless apple pie place, but bad things happen. Hence, I think Road to Perdition, there's a bit of a. Uh, diner scene really terrible continuity error in that sequence actually the sequence of course in Heat hell yes between Pacino and Robert De Niro don't remember it no <laughs> it's how it's like Robert De Niro is which one's he he's the bad guy he's the bad guy no no but where, would, where do I know him from you know him from the film Rocky and Bullwinkle he was yeah. in I can't remember what else he's been in other stuff oh um Grudge Match yes got it Grudge Match and Al, Al Alan Pacino Alan Pacino. <laughs> you, you remember, I'd he was in Jack and Jill. Yes. Not the guy from Jack, Jack and Jill and, and the guy from Rocky and Bullwinkle meet in, a, in, the, just, in the diner. You've just reminded me in the great TV show Stella Street, uh, Jimmy Hill and Al Pacino <laughs> <laughs> spend a lot of time together. And Jimmy Hill calls him Alan the whole way through. It's genius. There's, I recall an episode where Jimmy Hill, you have to watch this if you haven't seen it, it's all on YouTube. And he, he's trying to bake a cake, so he's trying to get a nozzle off, off Joe Pesci or something. And ah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I have a favourite dino, but it isn't. On, you mentioned TV, so I want to mention it. But it's Monk's Cafe from Seinfeld, which I went on a pilgrimage to. I went to go and see it in New York. Maybe I'll go and see it again when I'm seeing New York again this weekend. It doesn't look anything like Monk's Cafe in Seinfeld. In Seinfeld, it's a very traditional diner, but when you when you see it through the window, 
I didn't go in because it was too busy. It's kind of an old lady's house type <laughs> thing with like little bits and bobs and knickknacks everywhere. So don't be fooled if you head up oh. to Mark's Cafe. You've just reminded me the heat diner has just closed down because <gasps> Chris was telling me. It's very sad. It seemed like it was in the middle of nowhere. There's one more, uh, Band Apart. It's got a very famous cafe, French Parisian cafe dance sequence um, between Anna Karina, Sam Frey and Claude Brasseur in uh, the, in the uh, Godard film, which Quentin Tarantino's production company is named after, where they do a bit of a dance to Michel Legrand's score, originally Johnny Hooker's Shake It Baby, um, the three of them. It's a synchronised sort of France's Got Talent for the 60s type vibe. You've just reminded me of... Blues Brothers, yes, which has an amazing diner section where they are about to go out into the street and shake a tail feather. That's in a diner. Aretha, Fra- Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin sings uh, "Think" in a diner. That's it. Is that one thing? Obviously, yep. yes. Yep, 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 yep. That's amazing. Okay, I think we're done there. Uh, one more question to do. Uh, this comes via email from Benjamin Stevenson Hall. Uh, me and my friends often spend time amusing ourselves with the hilarious concept of working film titles into their respective movies' dialogue. So Age of Ultron perhaps will be said by Ultron when he get first gains sentience. Dawn of Justice, obviously said by Superman, the massive dork, uh, being a couple that have us giggling at the moment. So what film, in your opinions, has the best and most pointed inclusion of the title within a line of dialogue, and which films do you think would benefit from such a practice? I mm. hate to correct him, but the reason why Dawn of Justice gets mentioned in the new Superman movie is because Wonder Woman's first name is Dawn. That is true. Yeah, That is true. That is not true. Her name is Diana. And I hope somebody says as dialogue, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Because <laughs> it would be cheating just to say the, the last three words. I think it'd be better if it was Batman v, no S, or a full stop after that, Superman, yeah. colon, Dawn of Justice. Yeah. yeah. And mean, someone should said, say verses, and then someone else should, another character should correct them. Yes, that's so very just, good. Just with a V. That's good. Yeah. I, I mean, it is my, I mean, in answer to the second part of the question first, it is my thinking that every film title with a colon in it that's what they should work on getting into the dialogue right. you know this is the Pirates of the Caribbean colon at world's end you know yep. this is the Pirates yep. of the Caribbean colon on Stranger Tides we're I mean, in the lost world colon Jurassic Park <laughs> Jurassic Park is 89 miles away from Ila Sauna that uh, title so. bugs me I don't like it you know, I don't, they, I don't they, like they were originally going to call Park. it uh, the lost island but they wanted a crowbar in Jurassic Park they didn't like The Lost World because it was too much like the Arthur Conan Doyle story and the movies that have been made out of that. Do you think it was a legal thing then? They had to. No, I think that would have been out of copyright. They just didn't want. I just. Yeah, I don't, anyway, I don't that's not it. the film's biggest problem. I uh, discovered that uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was originally the Temple of Death. I did not know that. That is true. That but is true. But they decided that for some reason death on a big billboard during the summer put people off. Doom is more done, more fun than death. That's, is that's it? Is that that's scientifically proven. proven? Where yeah. is the Doom in that temple? Let's do oh, the bit where they rip your heart out. It's pretty doomy. Is that doom? What are you after? I mean, you're a dark man. I'm, I'm after Martian space imps with spiky bits, and then okay. somebody's well, face. On that level, it does disappoint. It does, how, yeah. does, how does it work? Does he go, I'm looking for the temple? Oh, the Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> it's about four miles. You go past like... the Temple of Death, and it's about another 75 <laughs> yeah, yards. Yeah, keep going. You've gone too far if you're at the Temple of Total Disaster. <laughs> I have heard rumour that, that Quentin Tarantino loves it when people do exactly this and they say the, the the title of a movie as dialogue and he cheers when he is out watching a film I've heard that so here's a fun quiz I'm turning a quiz back on you Ali which Tarantino film has the title spoken as dialogue there's only one Death well, Proof 
Oh, yes, of course. Of course yes. It is. The car is 100% death proof. Was it going to be called Doom Proof for a while before they decided <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> freaky enough? Doom Proof. Total disaster proof. So I have some favourites. Uh, movie titles Crowbar into Dialogue, Die Another Day. Ugh. Somebody actually says, So you live to die another day. Desolation of, of Smaug has uh, Ken Stott looking around and going, Oh, look, it's the desolation of Smaug. Yeah, but he Schmaug. doesn't say, Oh, look, look, it's the Hobbit. Call on the desolation. He should have of looked Smaug. into the camera and said, Hey, that. look, the Hobbit. <laughs> the desolation of Smaug is over there. <laughs> look, the Hobbit colon. <laughs> look. Actually, the Lord of the Rings films tend to have the title, not the full title, no, but they sadly. tend to have the title of each episode spoken. I don't think it happens in An Unexpected Journey, but I think it happens in the first three. In The Two Towers? Yeah, I think somebody says... Yeah, I think they do, yeah. Okay. Two Towers. Um, definitely. That definitely happens. Okay. Just like that. Um, so we'll see if somebody says Battle of the Five Armies and makes Quentin Tarantino cheer. How many armies are in here? Five. Did, did Let's I, have a battle of them. Did I tell you my slight niggle that none of those titles are actually technically exactly taken from the text of the book no. in the book it's battle of five armies not the not battle of the five armies oh that's true um it's an unexpected party obviously rather than an unexpected journey but that's a nice little sort of twist the desolation of smaug only appears i believe on the map otherwise it's called the desolation of the dragon interesting mm. that is interesting okay uh, they use the word taken and taken quite a lot god yes yeah i have a favorite which is uh, face off <laughs> because Nick Cage, it's Nick Cage, as, as, as I recall, it's Nick Cage pretending. No, which one is it? It's, it's John Travolta. Sorry, it's John Travolta pretending to be Nick Cage, and he takes some drugs, some fun party drugs, and then he has a kind of mini freak out and goes, I'm going to take his face. No, hang on. I'm doing Travolta as Cage. It's a hard impression to do. Anyway, he says, I'm going to take his face off, but then he repeats it several times. And he has that he has that great hand gesture in front of his face, sort of face waving around the head and then pulling away face from the face. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Just to make it clear what he's talking about. Just in case you didn't know what face was or what off meant. <laughs> what about I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on a motherfucking plane? Doesn't say snakes on a plane. Doesn't, you're right. But it's an anagram. <laughs> <laughs> I dread to think of what words. I'm... It's an anagram. If of... you rearrange the words in that sentence and take some of them out, you'll yeah. get the title. Does he say good night and good luck? Yes, he does. Does he? Because that, that was, was a classic. That's, that kind was of his, a, uh, that's kind of his catchphrase, yeah. yeah. It is his catchphrase. He does say that in his broadcast. Yeah. Yes, of course. And also, forget I, it, Jake, it's sorry. Chinatown. That's on my list too, yeah. Does anyone say octopussy in the film Octopussy? I don't know what one of those is. Ooh. Do you know what? It actually does happen. It does happen. It happens because there's a scene where, where Roger's sort of pouring. He's post-pouring Maud Adams. And he's, and he's looking and she's got her... She's got a weird sort of octopussy tattoo and uh, he, he says what's that and she goes that's my little octopusy genuinely and that's my that's my big one um, yes that genuinely, that happens. genuinely happens an octopusy this was halfway through the Bond Marathon and, and things were the walls were melting and stuff so uh, yeah god you weren't even close to, to the end of that it. point Full Metal Jacket he gets in which is interesting because Kubrick kind of made it up he found, it, he found that term in a gun magazine was he a subscriber to Man and Machine Gun and, uh, and Private Pile uh, says, um, says it yep you know, um, before, the, before he comes to a sticky end I like Miller's Crossing, just because they casually throw it in there. Yeah. Um, Bring It On it yeah. amuses me more than it should, probably. Um, what I else? like how they got the uh, cowed Robert Ford in its entirety. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, they're actually named... Ronan comes up with that name, right? He does. It's a bit crowbarred in there. Yeah, I don't one, like it. it. don't like it. Oh, I'd, I'd prefer it's an amusing movie. example, though. I would mm. like the, uh, Quite right. You're absolutely right. Amusing. I would like the movie to be called I Am Groot. 
Yes, that's the spin-off. I would like most movies to be called I Am Groot. Yeah. And one one final one from me, uh, Star Trek First Contact. James Cromwell's character actually manages to get the word Star Trek into a piece of dialogue. And he says, Are you all astronauts and some kind of Star Trek? Hey. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That was a good impression. I don't know what the guy sounds like. Not like that. That sounded convincing. <laughs> Not like that. Okay. He sounds a bit like James Cromwell. I'm proud of your impressions, bro. Thank you. Bye. Oh, this is so loving. Okay, uh, that's all the questions we have time for this week. If you want to send us a question, obviously we are on Twitter. We are at Empire Magazine. And do use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it because we're just so popular. We are also on Facebook at Empire Magazine as well. Uh, or you can email us your questions at podcast at empireonline.com. But now on to our first guest. Uh, Kaya Scodelario is a fast-rising young British actress familiar to fans of Skins. She's about to break out in a very big way with a key role in this week's slice of young adult dystopia, The Maze Runner. So we hauled her into Endeavour House and asked her to navigate her way through the deadly maze that leads to this pod booth, awaiting her, if she survived, myself and Ali Plum. Spoiler, she survived, otherwise this would be a really boring interview. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by Kaya Scodelario. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So, The Maze Runner, thank I'd you. read the book. So oh, I was wow. Kind of, yeah, I was excited to see oh, cool. how they translated it. But I think it was uh, Wes Ball for a first-time director. He's done brilliantly. Yeah, he's, uh, he's amazing. He was one of the things that kind of drew me to it the most. I think when you work with a first-time director, you get such an energy from them, such a real kind of love for the job. It's not about a paycheck or status or anything like that. He just really wanted to make this as fucking awesome as he could. And he, I think he really has. Like, he, yeah. he's gone above and beyond to just make it cool. It is so cool. Um, and he kept us going every day whenever we were, like, tired or sick of it. He'd, he'd speak for five minutes and we'd be like, oh, God, we've got to do it for Wes. Come on, guys, <laughs> pick it up. <laughs> when I spoke to you yesterday for a video interview, I promised you this would be a sweary podcast. You have yes, hit, I know. You've hit it with within a minute. Yes, thank you. That was probably my uh, my best so far. It's a record, I think. <laughs> yeah. oh, I mean, just speaking of first-time directors, you worked with Duncan Jones mm-hmm. on the moon, so you yeah. clearly have an eye for spotting talent, right? I wish it was that way around. <laughs> no, I think you just... It, it's so different. It's such a different atmosphere, and, and it's not its not about age or anything like that. It, it's just the kind of... It's like someone's baby, right? They're giving birth to this project, and they're putting all of themselves into it. And even if it doesn't go completely right, even if they mess up slightly, it's still so much passion to it that... You, you want to fight for it and you really want to do it and I, I've worked with other directors that have kind of been doing it a long time and they're just sort of there and it, it just makes it so much more boring Duncan was amazing because he was just like a big kid he was just like playing uh, with these spaceships and stuff uh, and he was really nice to my mum as well which I like about him and yeah it, I've got to work with quite a few cool ones yeah nice work that is a pretty heartbreaking scene that you're in in Moon mm-hmm. is rewatching it whenever I do it's like oh shit <laughs> when you were doing that was that a difficult scene I was it was my I was 14 I know I'd only ever done skins before it was the first proper audition I'd ever done and I didn't want to do it because I couldn't do an American accent and I was scared and I was nervous and he very kindly took me outside and spoke to me and said look just come into it in your own accent it's fine and then I got on set and I was terrified and and Sam Rocco was incredible with me. He kind of, again, sat me down, calmed me down. <laughs> and uh, and he went out of his way to come in on set that day, to, even though he wasn't on camera, uh, to just to, to do the lines off screen. And it was kind of the best advice I've ever been given. He said to me, you always, always be there for the other actor, even if you're not shown. Never let a stand-in do it. Never let anyone kind of pull you away. You always give yourself to everyone. 
and uh and, and that really helped me through it and being that young I kind of I felt really lost and confused and upset and everything but at the same time I, I it helped me get it it helped mm. me kind of understand what was going on in that moment and it's probably kind of one of my favorite scenes I've ever shot in my career um, and a lot of that is down to Sam being there. I did actually faint on set of that once, and he caught me. How great is that? Oh, wow. He, he physically caught me. That's a really old school move. I want <laughs> Sam Rockwell to catch me. Oh. My mum was obsessed with his ass. She kept staring at his ass every time he walked past. Not surprised. He's a fine figure of a man. <laughs> he is. He is indeed. I mean, speaking of which, of course, I'm going to bring it back to the film. You had many fine figures of men to work with in, in this film. Uh, see? see what I did? There was a segue. It was nice, wasn't it? But um, So tell me about how the, the cast, because I, I saw some featurettes saying that you all got on like a house on fire night. Actors always say that. We always, always say that. But I, I honestly, I can't believe how much of a family we are we have the most incredible friendship and i don't know i don't know what it was i don't know why it, i mean it could have gone horribly wrong there's like 10 of us half are american half are english we also listen to different music different sports but for some reason we've we've developed the closest bond i've ever felt with a group of friends um to a point where we have a whatsapp group we message every single day every single day someone will message like even if it's just a stupid vine or something um and when we're together we get so excited and we're screaming and jumping around and and we just have the most amazing fun when we were in louisiana we did the craziest shit we went on like swamp tours and water parks and we got a party bus which was like a bright pink school bus with furry walls and a stripper pole inside it and drove to new orleans and just got lost for two days like we just they're such a lovely group of boys that just want to enjoy life. They're not actory at all. They're not kind of like arseholes. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't like a, a British-American divide where you argued about who, which was best, Cadbury's or Hershey's? or Oh, well, yeah, we had that argument because Hershey's tastes like vomit. It's it disgusting. Does. I don't understand how they think that that is chocolate. We taught them a few slang words. Well, Wimbledon was on when we were filming and no one knew what the fuck that was, so that was annoying. Me and Thomas kept running around going, someone put the Wimbledon on, please. We, yeah, we taught them little bits and bobs, but there, there wasn't a divide. Amal was saying that a lot of it was who plays um, Albie in the, in the film, the kind of the leader of the Gladers. Yeah. That he was trying to get everyone to say, Wagwan. Wagwan, yeah. He was trying to teach him, like, Wagwan. <laughs> Which I would just, I would love to hear Dylan, Dylan O'Brien, <laughs> from Teen Wolf, uh, but now the star of this film as well. Uh, he's so, such a funny guy. He's hilarious, yeah. They yeah. all are. They're all really funny. And it's, it's a bit intimidating because... I'm clearly not the funny one, so I just sit back and enjoy. Will Poulter is probably the funniest person I've ever met in my life. He's so, so funny. Um, Dexter Darden's hilarious. Like Loads of the boys are really naturally funny. And they all love to sing, but like seriously sing. Name some songs. They'd randomly start singing like Whitney Houston and stuff, like weird stuff. Wow. Uh, one would start and they'd all slowly join in and then there'd be 10 of these random boys singing a really deep, meaningful song. Whoa. Yeah. We've got to invite them to our next karaoke night. <laughs> We've got to invite them all into the podcast booth and see if we can get some kind of a cappella going on. Will Poulter was telling me that it wasn't just you guys, you guys, you actor folk. It was also <laughs> the crew. One of the crewmen, whenever, because there are these, in the maze, there are these grievers, which are kind of a spider, monster, slug, alien. It's very difficult to explain, but they're bad. Mm -hmm. And when they, when you guys were acting uh, in the maze, uh, they, they would have a crew member going, I'm gonna get you. I'm a graver. I'm gonna get you. With a big Louisiana accent and yeah. Will Poulter going, I'm gonna get you, would crack me up every single time. He does the best Louisiana accent. He would imitate like the girls in reception and the the, the crews that like just worked painting stuff, and he'd do like a whole sketch about them. Like, yeah, he he's got the best southern accent. So, how much of the set was there? Was there like a 
you know, did you have an area which was definitely the glade? Did it yeah, we had a, a the bit? real huge glade. I mean, this huge, huge piece of land uh, that we actually camped out on one night and uh, had the owner come down with a shotgun to check that we weren't intruders, <laughs> which was quite scary. God Yikes. bless America <laughs> and all of that. But um, it, it's a really beautiful place. Um, the sky in Louisiana blew my mind. It's so big. It feels so big. And there were snakes everywhere, there were bugs, horseflies, everything. And it was great. I mean, every bead of sweat, every bit of dirt on us is real. Uh, there was no makeup at all. Everything was what we were feeling. The first couple of days, everyone was like, oh, my God, fuck this. I'm going back to London. I can't deal with this. I'm not. And then by the end of it, we all became these, like, feral animals. We loved it. We were pissing in the bushes and running around with flags and dirt on our face. Uh, we really embraced it. Well, some of the boys didn't. I won't name names, but um, <laughs> a few of them pussied out at some point. Uh, but yeah, it, it was it was great to have that actual real environment to work with. Um, and after that, we went onto a soundstage to shoot the maze stuff. But we'd become so accustomed to the place that it felt real by then, mm. um, which is great because it, the actual maze that we were running around in was only like a hallway one bit of set that we'd run up and down and up and down in. So if we hadn't have had that experience beforehand, I think it'd have been a lot tougher to to Touch. imagine what it would be like. Yeah, I would say so. But there's no point in building loads of bits of a maze because no. let's face it, it all looks the same. And it all looks the, the same. <laughs> Can I ask, I can't imagine what it's like to be you because you're another human being and mm -hmm. it's difficult to do that. But I guess walking around London, you do get people who recognise you. Was it refreshing to be in Louisiana and go, no one knows who I am? It was nice. I mean, it's nice just because everything's different the town that we were staying in literally the only two shops or stores was a gun shop and a pizza shack that was someone's kitchen it's normally one after the other yeah, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> that was literally all there was so for me i was like this is brilliant this is another world completely um and i just i found it such an interesting part of america um there's an actual kind of culture and a history there and and things to learn about and whenever i'm in la i kind of miss that i feel like there's mm. not nothing to grab onto there whereas in Louisiana we went and and we learned stuff and we had Cajun food and we spoke to to people that had lived there their whole lives and asked about the changes and things like that and and it, I found it really kind of uh, an interesting place to be but yeah just a gun shop and a pizza shop <laughs> yeah I was there for the first time recently and it's mm. the same it is it is weird to see buildings older than about 50 years yeah yeah say it's, it's just bizarre mm. yeah always weird and you do a great American accent in this thank you and you're surrounded by people who, Amel's accent's ridiculous. I can't, I couldn't. If someone said to me, yeah. I went, no, I honestly don't believe you. And then you've got Tom, who just plays an English guy. Yeah, but the character was actually English in the book. To be fair. So that's not just that his accent was shit. Not at all. No. <laughs> no, but it must be a bit distracting. Like, you guys, you know, you're doing work and, you know, so is Will Poulter and all that lot. And then Tom's like, yeah, well, I don't have to. Yeah, I know. It's really annoying. <laughs> Deal with it. But he did have to remember to have a limp the whole time. And I thought that must be annoying to have to constantly. So he ended up having to put a rock in his shoe to remind himself that he had to limp on one leg. So I kind of, I'd rather have to do the accent than walk around on a rock all day. You suffer for your art. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to training yourself into the dialect, uh, do you do you have trigger words? Is there, how do you get yourself into the accent? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting thing. I really enjoyed learning about it. I'm quite lucky where my mum is Brazilian and I speak fluent Portuguese. So my mouth is used to making different shapes, which sounds really dodgy. But, <laughs> but it, it, it's all about technique and where your tongue sits and your mouth and things like that. And if you ask someone to, okay, so describe your flat to me. Um, there that um sound okay that is the um the first port of call of every accent 
So in English it's um, and uh-huh. then in another accent it will be something else. It changes. So that's how you know. So you uh-huh. kind of, if you always go back to that sound and put your tongue where that sound sits, then that's how you can get into it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's quite cool. Isn't wow. It? I feel like I'm now prepared to do a Go for different it. Accent. Do something. I'm really not. Really, really not. Um, I'm going to get you. <laughs> I sure am. You went to Comic Con. Yes. And, and the whole whole group of you. So mm-hmm. I imagine that was a bit of a party. Now, it was. It was very weird, though. Yeah. Very strange place. It's, it's an odd place. Isn't I it? loved it. I woke up one morning and there was a Star Trooper fighting Beetlejuice outside my window. <laughs> I was like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> Were you tempted to put on a mask and walk the floor? We did. We uh, we got what mask did we have? Oh, the Viva Vendetta mask. Oh yeah. And we walked around a bit because I really wanted to have a look around. Because to me, that's like stuff that you see in films and TV shows growing up. Um, so I really wanted to have a look around. It was very cool. Dylan was also saying that he had to wear some kind of. It wasn't Spider Man, but it was like a weird. Another mask as well. Like a head sock thing yeah. that he had, yeah. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. <laughs> You've got to be careful. Teen Wolf fans are, you know, wolfish, I guess. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Hall H, you were in Hall H, which yeah. is thousands upon thousands of people just staring at you. What do you do to calm your nerves before you go into Hall H? Have a drink. A big drink. <laughs> underneath, underneath. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but that's all you can do. Humongous gin and tonic. Uh, it was terrifying. We were all, I was probably the worst. I was the most petrified. I get really, really nervous in those situations. Um... And the boys are really lovely. They just sat me down and Dylan was like, look, if, if, if I'll just take control and, and I'll talk and you just sit there. And I'll be like, okay. And I was shaking. I had a massive panic attack. And then someone brought out a couple of shots of vodka and it was all good. Let's go. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. The healing power of vodka. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things you've got coming up, mm-hmm. um, particularly The Moon and the Sun, which yeah. is just a fascinating sounding story. I have to confess, I haven't read that book. Mm-hmm. But um, the combination of Louis Fourteenth and a mermaid. Yeah. Um, is an interesting one and then your character is kind of caught in the middle I guess yeah. it's it's a really kind of crazy idea but so beautiful and out there and I kind of wanted to do something like that um, it's it's Pierce Brosnan playing Louis XIV and that was to me one of the biggest draws because he was my bond growing up and I just wanted to meet the man and he's probably the nicest person I've ever worked with in my life by far by like a million He's um, he's a gentleman he loves life he still wants to go out and embrace things and meet people and have fun. He loves Radiohead. Yeah, he does. He, he loves everything. He's he's still like such a heart. Um, and then there's William Hurt playing Pere Chase. And it's just, it's I like, I'm a bit obsessed with history and that decade and stuff, but this is kind of very heightened. Uh, so Versailles and court is, you know, really over the top and everyone there looks like fashion models. And I turn up and I'm sort of the, you know, the... Um, the black sheep that that walks in and is lost and doesn't know where she is uh, and discovers that Louis is her father and is trying to connect with him Uh, and then also at the same time befriends this mermaid who he has a rather nasty plan for and it's kind of you know coming of age it's uh, she falls in love and it's the connection with the father and the friendship with the mermaid and I seem to kind of be drawn to these roles of outsiders and, and trying to fit in and then trying to work out whether you need to fit in or not um it's something i've kind of been through a lot growing up kind of do i do i need to be liked do i need to to want to be liked and can i be happy with myself um i find that interesting to play at the moment it's kind of it's what interests me yeah cool it's, it just sounds like a really interesting idea mm-hmm. and also an interesting way to do a, a sort of period yeah. costume piece you yeah. know you get the fa- fabulous dresses but you also get mermaids exactly. so happy days <laughs> and Pierce Brosnan which is yeah do you think he's one of the coolest people on the planet 
Did, did you do anything outside of the, the shoot? Was he? Oh, he did some. He had his sixty-second birthday while we were out there. You had a birthday party. And we had a birthday party with Pierce, and we were like, "Piercey, what we called him, Piercey Baby." That's how he liked to be addressed by us. <laughs> and I said, "Piercey Baby, what do you want to do?" He's like, "Well, let's go to the opera." I was like, "Piercey, I've never been to the opera." He's like, "I'm gonna take you to the opera. I'm gonna show you the opera." Went to the opera. Had a very classy, very lovely night. Then went to a restaurant that they'd shut down for him because he'd made friends with the owner. And we had the most amazing meal. And then afterwards, it's late. It's like one o'clock in the morning. I'm like, okay, Piers, do you want to just take you back to your hotel? He's like, no, we're going to the club. And we took him to a nightclub and we danced all night with Piers. And he spoke to everyone and he danced with everyone. And we were out until about five in the morning. It was amazing. I, uh, I watched A Long Way Down recently and he does some amazing dance moves. Oh, he's it. a dancer. He loves it. He's like, half of it's like really classy, like kind of sultry, sexy stuff. And the other side is just dad dancing. It just goes, let's go. He just hands <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> hips just wiggling. He Incredible. loves moving his hips. We have a dance together in The Moon and the Sun. And it's it's this father-daughter dance and it's very kind of sweet. And, and then after that he cuts into dancing with the sexy court girls and it's suddenly hips are flying everywhere it's amazing i don't i don't know whether i want him to be my dad i just want him to be my best mate yeah, I think yeah. is what it is yeah um and one final question i saw on your twitter feed that you're a bad boys fan because mm-hmm. you were very yeah, excited, I was about bad really boys excited about that so what are some of your other favorite films that people might not expect of you i'm quite cheesy i'm i love every arnie film that's ever happened and will ever happen i have such a special place for him in my heart i can't describe it i used to look through the radio times when i was little and try and find his name and then i'd watch whatever it was um and I'm obsessed with them. I've seen Kindergarten Cop and Terminate 2 like a million times. Uh, and then I think growing up, my mum always liked to introduce me to older films. So I was always, we watched a lot of foreign Brazilian films. Um, Boogie Nights was one of my favourite films growing up. Wow, growing up, was mm-hmm. it? Yeah, she she was very kind of open and honest with me. She's Brazilian, she's just like, yeah, this is life. Get to know it now. This Mark Wahlberg <laughs> yeah. is life. But that's one of my favourite scenes of any film ever is Alfred Molina in the Boogie Nights at the end when he's throwing the firecrackers and mm-hmm. just their reactions. They look so terrified and just at the end of everything. Um, yeah, that's it really. I, I kind of I watched everything growing up. I really loved movies. I really I was quite a quiet child and that was how I'd take myself out of the world, just go and watch a movie. Nice. There's a lot of the people in the Empire office, yeah. but we are in different sides <laughs> of the coin here. But anyway, if that was our last question. I thought it was. Yeah, I think it is too. Thank you so much for Thank coming down. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a big, big pleasure and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Okay, so that was Kaius Godelaria, very nice woman. We're looking for more great things from her. Uh, now, of course, it is movie news time. What have you got for me, Ali? I've got something which is reasonably close to my heart, or rather reasonably close to being quite frustrated as a teenager. Not in that way, but in the way that you play a computer game that you find yourself loving, but also going, this is too hard for me. I'm dumb. I can't do it. I'm course, I am, of course, talking about Myst, M-Y-S-T, which was a incredibly popular computer game for both Mac and PC, uh, which had a number of different sequels, uh, all trippy and weird and uh, Riven. very complicated and purposefully oblique, uh, that saw you as The Stranger. It's a bit like The Prisoner, the movie The Prisoner. Not the movie, the TV show The Prisoner. In so much as that you arrive in this island, uh, there are some trees, there's this clock tower, there's a few other things, and you have to solve puzzles that you don't realise are puzzles, or are they puzzles, or what are you doing, so you can solve the mystery. There are about five games, I think. They are now making it into a TV show, and I, I bring it up because Legendary, 
their TV branch, obviously legendary, the guys behind so many of the big blockbusters, like recently Pacific Rim and Man of Steel, a couple of others, are doing the TV version of this, which is pretty incredible that they've actually decided this late in the game, no pun intended, to take a classic 90s setup and then from the gaming world and turn it into a TV show. And I can really see it. I think it's a very clever idea that really does have a grand mystery element that could really be evolved gradually over the course of different episodes. That would be great. You need more characters than just The Stranger, of course. But we'll see We'll see how it goes. But it makes me think, what other classic 90s games could we see on a TV show? I think, though it's not a game, and Carter 95 might be an interesting documentary series. Only facts that were relevant at that point, please. Also, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was, of course, a children's TV show, uh, but it could make a probably still quite bad children's tv show uh, now and finally age of empires which is a game i played more than i probably should have uh, as a young un uh, on a local area network so i'd like all of those to be turned into tv shows too please nick what have you got for us i have a brace of exciting tv news more Ooh. tv news uh, i will i will fire it all out of my news cannon and then we can dissect it uh tom hiddleston and hugh laurie are teaming up for I'm on a board. new bbc yeah new bbc series the night manager which is uh, based on the novel by John le Carre. Is it about a supermarket? It is, yeah. It's based on a Tesco Metro. The Night Manager is a pretty boring title. The Night Manager is not, not one of his juiciest titles. Well, if it was called... Doom. Yeah, the Night Manager of Doom. Doom Manager. The Sainsbury's Local of Death. Mm, Tinker Taylor, Soldier, Night Manager. <laughs> so there is that. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, stroke Johansson, is also coming to TV. She will star in and executive produce an adaptation of Edith Wharton's The Custom of the Country, where she plays a brilliantly named character, Undine Sprague. And then finally, there was a little show called Twin Peaks. Never heard of, heard of it. Something about pie and coffee and... Twin Peaks, is it Twin, not Twin Pines from Back to the Future? Twin Pines Mall, that's what you're thinking Peaks, of. Peaks. I know, Peaks. Oh. And that's coming back. That's coming back. What do we know about that at this point? We know very little. We know that there will be, I think it's eight or nine episodes, which will be d- all directed by David Lynch, apparently. That is great. And also that it is set sort of in real time, 25 years on from the events of the original series, right? So that's going to be, a, a, you know, a genuine uh, sort of evolution. They don't have to recast... Can I ask more about The Night Manager? What is it actually about? Is it actually about a supermarket? It's not. So it's basically about a British soldier named Jonathan Pine, who will be played by Hiddleston, who becomes an auditor for a luxury hotel, and then, uh, for complex reasons I cannot go into here, goes undercover with uh, intelligence operatives to avenge a lady's death. Hmm. Yeah. So. And do we know anything about Hugh Laurie's role? I hope he's a baddie. I think apparently he's playing a weapons dealer. Awesome. The baddie. The baddie. I watched a film last night, this isn't really relevant, in which Ronald Reagan played the baddie. Was it called The 80s? Oh, oh hello, that's political. <laughs> we don't like politics in this podcast. Quick, say something fascist to make up for it. Uh. Mm. And now time for a quick musical interlude before I launch into my story. You may be a clue as to what I'm going to talk about. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think we're on the run. There's a Dad's Army movie coming, and they've cast it. Looks like a solid ensemble, I think they put together, uh, including Toby Jones uh-huh. as the man uh, mannering. Bill Maher, he's playing the sort of lugubrious Sergeant Wilson. Blake Harrison 
playing Private Pike. There um, could have been no one else. There could yeah. have been no one else. This is Blake Harrison, of course, from The Inbetweeners, late of this podcast. He seems like spot-on casting. Absolutely. When they announced the project, uh, we did a who should play who in this, and we did like five of the main characters, and we got one of them right. Uh, I was... got one of them right specifically because I wrote it, and that was Blake Harrison, because there's literally no one else that could play that role. Daniel Mays playing this bit of like Walker, he's a bit of a black marketeer, a bit of a... Uh, fly-by-night type dude and uh, Michael Gambon as Godfrey um, slightly doddery to Godfrey um, amongst others including Catherine Tita jones who plays a journalist who comes down, it's sort of set as the war's winding down and there's a spy in the ranks may or may not be I feel like that's almost certain to be Catherine Tita jones I don't think this is a spoiler because it's wild speculation but just looking at the cast list it seems like 90% certain it's going to be Catherine Tita jones But she's the journalist who just turned up she'd be a rubbish spy wow. Oh you think she's coming to spy There's a spy but, on the loose it I says see. You know, okay. so. Well look, if you don't know Dad's Army you haven't watched BBC Two on a Saturday evening around about 6-7 o'clock for the last 56 years um, it's basically red in the Second World War um, with a bunch of old dudes who form the Home Guard of a small town in on the English south coast preparing for an invasion by Hitler and his dreaded Wehrmacht. There are giant arrows that point at the French coast at the beginning. I um, hope we're going to see those. And it's basically the best exotic <laughs> marigold barracks, I guess is what you'd call this. And I think the casting's pretty good. I haven't really formed an opinion on whether I want to see this film, but um, they couldn't have done much better with it. Yeah, absolutely. That's spot on casting anyway. Um, there is one film story we haven't mentioned yet, and that is the continuing development of Ghostbusters 3. Now, I have to say, for a while on the site, we stopped reporting on Ghostbusters 3 because people kept running news stories about it that had absolutely no substance. However, it is now moving. It is OK to care about Ghostbusters again. Um, Paul Feige is locked in as director, and he has just brought aboard uh, the Heat's screenwriter, uh, Katie Dippold to help craft the script so there is movement and he has also confirmed in a tweet he said it's official I'm making a new Ghostbusters and writing it with Katie Dippold and yes it will star hilarious woman that's who I'm going to call so the speculation on his casting starts now basically who will be funny in their own right who will work as part of a comedy ensemble Um, will be all girls or a little bit mixed is it just focused on women and are there some men in there who knows but uh, this is always the place for wild speculation. Is it safe to say that Melissa McCarthy will be involved? She would seem like the closest thing there is to a lock. The thing that's interesting about her is, up until now, I feel like in, in movies, they've been using her as this very crude, loudmouthed character that she played in The Heat, that she played in Bridesmaids, that she played in Tammy. And I've just been going back and re-watching Gilmore Girls, and she's brilliant as a really sweet, innocent slightly bumbling character and I wish that the movies would give her a chance to do that because honestly I think she'd be even more popular doing that so I would like to see her as more of a you know the kind of the sweetness of the Dan Aykroyd character she could be the Ray yeah Yeah. she could be the Ray that would be wonderful I I fear that that won't be the case so I, I will be quite happy if she's not announced I just I hated Tammy I really liked her I really like her in Bridesmaids but the stuff she's done since has just the heat a bit less so but I'm I'm really tired of that persona can Emma Stone be the secretary can Emma Stone be one of the Ghostbusters? Because I feel like Emma Stone looks a lot like her. I think the secretary, I think the secretary be needs to be a man. It? it needs to be a man. I saw somebody speculating it should be Paul Rudd. I think it was Robbie Collin. I don't know. Are they just going to flip the gender of everything? Is is Slimer going to be that, a lady? Down that rabbit hole seems a bit strange. But maybe. Mrs. Slimer. I think it should be like the plot of Jaws 3 where um, Stay Puft Marshmallow's <laughs> mum comes back and hunts down the people that like... In the Caribbean. 
in the also in the Caribbean, <laughs> exactly. And is that no? Jaws yeah, four. That's Jaws the revenge. Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Come Jaws. On, for yeah. Apologies, Jaws aficionado. Jaws. Sorry, Michael Caine. Did you just say aficionados? Yeah, aficionados. Uh, Rebel Wilson, please, can not be in this film if possible. Um, She's but, quite funny in Pitch Perfect. Yeah, but she, I don't think it's her fault. But they just keep playing her in that same that same role as a sort of slightly. Well, this is maybe annoying. the same problem as McCarthy. I think yeah. um, maybe they both need to kind of break out a little bit and do something different. Um, loads of names have been put forward. There's a there's a wealth of of comedy talent out there at the moment. Uh, Mindy Kaling, uh, Amy Poehler, and Tina Fey are obviously uh, high up on people's wish lists. Uh, Emily Blunt yep. certainly showed she could do action in day uh, in Edge of Tomorrow, not Day After Tomorrow. That's a completely different film. So you know, it seemed like there's there's certainly some names to choose from. I have some more names: Bring Rashida it. Jones, yes, Anna Faris, okay, who is underrated. She is very Anna underrated. Faris is a very funny lady. She and is. She will not... be on this podcast next week, proving oh, just that. Exciting! I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, she's great. Kristen Wiig, yes, uh, obvious choice again. Emma Stone, I think you, you mentioned already. Octavia Spencer, very funny on Thirty Rock. Oh, true. Um, Jane Krakowski, Kristen Schaal, although there's a little bit of the kind of people getting a bit tired of her. Maybe Alison Brie should be in this movie. Alison Brie. Yes, Alison I would be Brie. okay with be that. Happy with that. Alison think- Janney when we're on the Allisons. Or Gillian Jacobs. Shosha Mamet. Am I saying that right? Zosha. From Girls. And I'm going to throw in Jennifer Lawrence. Why not? She's on the cover of Vanity Fair. That's nice for her, isn't it? Jenny Slate, who is in... Obvious Child. Obvious Child. She's very funny. Penny Crown. She's around New York. If it's in New York, not the Caribbean, which it may well be. <laughs> who can say? In our version, anyway. Ernie Hudson not very happy about this. But this is what Bill Murray sort of leaked this, hadn't he? Uh, um, a few months back. He'd mentioned that it was going to be, you know, this kind of setup. Here's my theory. Getting a whole new crowd of women in might actually lure Bill Murray back like nothing else. He does like Emma Stone. He does like Emma Stone. He was in in Charlie's Angels. I feel like it could happen. Could he cameo as a ghost? There was talk of that. Uh, I I think he said at one point that he'd only be in it if he was a ghost in an interview. Um, but I think he also said he shredded the script they sent him, so I don't know if he, how up for being involved in any capacity he is. I don't know, this is such a kind of unknown thing, but why not do another one? I, it's it's so long after the originals, they're completely recasting it. Yeah, I do it's feel a like... It's fun concept for a movie. I do feel like if you're going to do another one, try and make it distinct and different, and, you know, maybe having an, an entirely new cast and them all being women is, is enough to, to give it that kick. Uh, it's time now for another interview our next guest is nothing short of a national treasure when he's not single-handedly taking on the country's tabloids he's busy being the king of the rom-coms a title he has held since 1994 when four weddings and a funeral took the world by storm and made him a household name since then he's stammered blushed and cadded his way through the likes of Notting Hill both Bridget Jones movies about a boy music and lyrics and the pirates which isn't a rom but is very much a com so we're kind of allowing it this week, he reunites with Mark Lawrence, director of music and lyrics, for the rewrite. He is, of course, Sir Hugh of Grant, and he was talking to myself and Ali. Hugh Grant, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us Thank to you. talk about the rewrite. You play a writer in this very well, I thought, actually. Very um, nice of you. But it's weird because I was talking to the makers of Pride recently, and they were saying, sort of apropos of essentially nothing, that it's very difficult to cast writers, that it's a, it's a role that's quite hard for actors to play often. Is that something that you find, or is it just, you know, was in the script? Um, There's always been a part of me that wanted to do more writing. I used to earn a living writing radio commercials and scripts for television and things, and then I got sidetracked into just acting. So it's it's sort of in there. And I have written half a novel. Oh, really? I think that, you know, Mark Lawrence, who wrote and directed this film, he he knew that side of me, felt that therefore 
I might be able to be convincing as a writer. Does your half a novel have half a name? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, actually, it has a whole list of possible titles. <laughs> and I make more sometimes when I'm drunk. Were there any uh, commercials that you were particularly proud of back in the day? Yes, I won prizes, actually. Did you? I well said done. I. I wrote them with two friends, and uh, we did. We won things called Golden Arrows, I think they were. Silver Arrows. In the, uh, this was in the 1980s. We made them for a firm called Talkback, who are now, I think, a huge TV company. But in those days, we were just a tiny little office in Carnaby Street making radio commercials. It was owned by Griff Rhys Jones and Mel uh-huh. Smith. So you weren't a jingle guy, just to be clear. Jingles we slightly dreaded, or at least the, the strap lines we dreaded. You had to sort of get to that. That was given to you by the agency. Yeah, we did the bit leading up to it. We did, yeah, red striped lager, mighty white sliced bread, with all the goodness of brown, but the great taste of white. <laughs> The character that this character in the rewrites reminds me most of in your back catalogue is in music and lyrics. Yes. Because that's kind of a writer, obviously, but for songs. Is this character here, Keith Michaels, in your bastard category or is it in the good guy category? I have so many categories, it's hard to say. No, I mean, uh, you're right that um, music and lyrics had a... I I was a a has-been, a washed-up 1980s pop star. And in this one, I'm a... Uh, now failed Oscar-winning screenwriter. I don't know. That's uh, something Mark seems to be drawn to. Yeah, I think it would suits suits a middle-aged man. What else do you do with a middle-aged man, really? And and it's a, it gives a little comic lilt, mm. and uh, I suppose invites sympathy. The other option is to give you a gun and put you in the Expendables, I guess. But that's probably not on the menu. I turn those scripts down. I get too many scripts like that. The song from Music and Lyrics does that ever get stuck in your head? Because occasionally it gets stuck in mine. And it's your fault. I know, I'm very sorry. I'm also very sorry that I didn't make a better deal on the music in that film because it actually, those songs became huge hits, especially in the Far East. Is it South Korea it's huge or...? Yeah, South Korea, Taiwan, China, uh, you name it. People are singing uh, Way Back Into Love and Pop Goes My Heart. <laughs> All I can say is I'm sorry, but actually, <laughs> I think they're rather good. They're written by a very clever uh, songwriter from Fountains of Wayne who... Uh, is not to be sniffed at. Mm-hmm. They're brilliant parodies of 80s stuff. Yeah, it is one of the best pop parodies I've ever seen in a film, mm-hmm. along with Backdoor Lover and Josie and the Pussycats, which oh, if you ever wow. get a chance, it's really amusing. So this this film is also one with an incredible supporting cast. You've got you know people like Alison Janney and J.K. Simmons. and then Who was the funniest person on set, off camera? Well, Apart from yourself, obviously. <laughs> uh, no, I had a laugh with almost everyone, but I mean, Chris Elliott, you know, is a great comic genius. Even before he turned up on a set, I was... Such a fan of his. Not only from the acting he does, but, you know, if you watch his chat shows, genius. You mentioned earlier parodies. I was wondering whether I could bring up a parody you did in 1999, I believe, which was the Doctor Who thing. Yeah, for comic relief. And you played the 12th Doctor, the handsome Doctor. Yes, he was billed as handsome Doctor in the script, but I always called him dull Doctor. Everyone else had kind of interesting Doctors to play, and I was just dull, dishy Doctor. You do have a killer dying line. Do I? I can't remember. Look after the universe for me. I've put a lot of work into it. And then you transform into Joanna Lumley, <laughs> which is something that every actor, I feel, is jealous of. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you have Peter Capaldi playing the 12th Doctor. I was just wondering whether they gave you a ring. They should have given you a, at least a cursory phone call to see if you wanted to step into the TARDIS one last time. <laughs> but it's Peter Capaldi, well, who I did The Lair of the White Worm with, which I'm sure is cinephiles you've watched and loved. So many times. Yes. I've heard of it several times. I, well, I'll be honest. Take a lot of drugs and then watch it. Okay. <laughs> it was a Ken Russell film, uh, again made in the eighties. I'm an RAF officer. I don't know why, and uh, and Amanda Donahoe is possessed by a snake devil, and Peter Capaldi is <laughs> runs around in a kilt trying to kill the snake. It's genius, and it's uh, 
It's based on a Bram Stoker novel, and I think Ken Russell meant it to be a serious horror film. But at the read-through, which we, for some reason we did the day before we started shooting, the cast laughed so hard that he's, I think he made the whole film with his tongue in his cheek. And it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I would like to see that as an episode of Doctor Who also yeah. now. Um, Peter Capaldi <laughs> chasing Ron to Snake Devil in a Kilt. I was actually going to ask, I mean, in terms of uh, being offered roles and, and being pitched things, I really loved Cloud Atlas. I thought it was just so strange and audacious and, and brilliant and weird and wonderful. But I'm, I'm fascinated to know how they pitched that to you you know well you're going to be an evil industrialist and also a cannibal I mean how did the how did the conversation go it just came up via my agent and I wasn't sure if they were joking in some way that they wanted me to play these parts so I said well I better go meet the Wachowskis and I did and they were completely charming I don't know if you've met them fascinating actually mm. and uh, and then I said well okay I'll do it but I'd like one more part because they were offering me five at that point and, uh, that, and then I said I think I could play that old man um, you know, the one who's the brother of uh, Jim oh, yes. Broadbent. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, fine, yeah, okay, play that. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think, you know, they're, they're proper filmmakers. They make cinema, not sort of blown-up TV. And uh, I'm very sad that the film never found as much audience as it deserved. Not when I put that much effort into it. I mean, I sat in makeup basically for a year on it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it must have been... Uh quite difficult just I mean you've presumably got to shoot the scenes in some kind of order just because otherwise you'd have people going in and out of makeup all day every day from one well, look to another that is all we did right. there were two well, you know there were two crews on that film mm. and uh, certainly two massive makeup departments and just people sitting there me and Tom Hanks and Jim Broadbent just sitting there having plastic glued to our faces for seven hours sometimes Ooh. I know that's unpleasant and then you get claustrophobic and I was, I was quite difficult really <laughs> There's a. I would like to compliment you on your fantastic um, wake up call uh, image when you. That's were, from Cloud Atlas, yeah. which I really enjoyed. Yes. Yes. Where it was you supposedly just gotten out of bed. I don't know how to describe it, but yes, old, a little, a little wrinkled, shall we say? That, that I really enjoyed that. I didn't see it coming. <laughs> it's not far off the truth now. Anyway. <laughs> but speaking of makeup, but Nicholas Holt plays this superhero now. Your about a boy co-star, Beast. He becomes blue every time he needs to do what he has to does do. He? he does, yeah. What's this from? X-Men. So the X-Men oh, yeah, I've got to see that. Yeah, he's got all the pear and the blue and the whatever. Okay. And I saw, was it last year that you were you were at a convention or you were at something together? What was it like seeing uh, your old co-star? And do you take all the credit for his success? Of course. He is everything to me. Um, no, I saw him at a, the, um, the Formula One race in Montreal. Oh, awesome. Yeah, uh, last summer. And we both have a thing about cars. Even when we were doing About a Boy, he was the one that made me, in fact, buy my first really silly midlife crisis car. Uh, he wore me down and I ended up with this huge Aston Martin that never really worked properly. That was all his fault. But it's kind of wonderful that he pushed you into doing that because you just need an excuse, I think, don't you? You just need someone to tell you, go on. I, I didn't need much pushing. <laughs> but uh, no, he's a good egg. I, I, taught him, uh, I taught him golf between takes, I remember that. Uh, he's lovely, you've probably met him. We yes. have, yes. Yeah. He's a very charming man. Yeah. Yeah. He came in in the middle of a blizzard last year, actually, for the for this very podcast. Uh, so, um, well ate, done him. And ate a cake live on air. That's true. Also wanted to ask about The Pirate Captain, which is, a f- we just did a, a list on the greatest voice performances, and that was one that, that featured just because we enjoyed the heck out of that movie. <laughs> it's so funny. And there are so many layers of jokes. I mean, did you get to watch it enough times that you've picked them all up? Well, I agree with you. One of the genius, genius aspects of... Ardman is that 
there's more and more. The more you watch it, the more you see that some animator has slipped yet another little <laughs> visual joke into the background. I, yeah, I'm very proud of that film. It's, uh, well, the only thing that annoys me is that literally no one believes that it's me doing the pirate captain. <laughs> Who do know. they think it is? I don't know, but I mean, friends and relations, is that really you? Yes, yes, that's me. Glad it worked out as well for, for Peter Lord, who directed it, mm. because the way those things work is that uh, they make a kind of uh, budget version of the, of the animation with some actor that they particularly like, who's not very expensive. And they take that, it's all just drawn, done in sort of drawings, to a studio and then say, can we make the full version in you know, um, stop motion, which is going to cost $100 million? And the studio says yes, but only if you recast all the actors with name names. So Peter Lord sort of ended up having me, I, I claim, under sufferance. And um, <laughs> I'm glad it worked out for him in the end. But I could tell it was torture for him for the first few weeks listening to my voice, which wasn't the voice that he'd been working with for, for a year up till then. He's a lovely man as well. Did he, did he give you a, an array of pirate captains to take home? I do have a pirate captain. I also, more significantly, have a morph. Wow. Which he created, yes. And it's worth a bob or two. I bet it is. Yes. And one of my children has already demorphed it. Because it is, after all, just a piece of plasticine. <laughs> <laughs> That's both amusing and horrifying me at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Morph was suddenly just a sausage. <laughs> what do you do in those circumstances? Do you post it back to Peter Lord going, could you roll this back out, well, please? <laughs> Funny enough, I saw him make my morph and it took him about 45 seconds. So <laughs> Next time he's in London, I'll get him to do that. Are there many bits of memorabilia from your, from your career that you've kept uh, or is it just the incidental morph here and there? I wish I'd kept more. Uh, I used to have, in that scene in Sense and Sensibility where Emma does all that crying at the end, the one they were talking about on Graham Norton the other day, I play with a little figurine on the mantelpiece. It's a little... Goat. I remember thinking, what shall I do while she's doing all this? I know, I'll play with a goat. And uh, I used to have that, but it was stolen, I think, by Elizabeth Hurley. She has light fingers. You heard it here first. Yeah. You know, it's the 20th anniversary of uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Is there, are there any plans for, like, a reunion screening or anything like that? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> there was a, th a reunion radio programme. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't around for it. One that I really want to do something about is, um, of course, as you may have guessed, music and lyrics. Can't wait for the reunion of that. Just a few years' time. I want to see you and Drew singing again. That's important to me. And you shall. Yes. yes. Hooray. <laughs> that was so traumatic, uh, having to sing and perform in that, because I'm not naturally a kind of pop star kind of man. And I had to do that those uh, scenes on a combination of whiskey smuggled into the makeup box in a 7-Up bottle. And uh, quite heavy tranquilizers, tamazepam to be exact. Is this is help your uh, your vocal cords, or is this for pain? I couldn't just sort of swing my hips and go crazy at seven in the morning in front of a bunch of extras without some help. This is another curiosity question, but is it true that James Khan refers to you as Whippy? I used to refer to myself as Whippy. He liked it. And when James Khan likes calling you Whippy, you don't tell him not to. Well, he's not as frightening as you think he is. Oh, okay. You're confusing him with Sonny from The Godfather. Yes, I am. <laughs> that happens to him a lot, I apologise. Yeah. You're also going to be in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Um, so what can you tell us about, is it Waverly? I'm Waverly, who's mm. their boss. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I don't know what to tell you really. I haven't seen the film yet. I, I, I can only imagine it's going to be very stylish because it's set in the 60s and, you know, Guy Ritchie's a brilliant stylist. So that's the vibe I got off it, but I haven't seen it. 
but I'm, I'm expecting great suits from everybody involved. My suit in particular is of course. En- enchanting. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that you're on Twitter. How are you finding this? What's yeah, I'm not a natural Twitterist. I never wanted to be on it. It was only my fellow campaigners with Hacked Off who said, no, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And so I do it, but slightly reluctantly and rather drearily. I mean, they're only about politics. Mm-hmm. I don't... I don't. They keep saying, oh, we'll go and show some leg and then you'll get millions of followers. But I refuse to show my leg. <laughs> Who are these people telling you to show some leg? Well, uh, I respect them, but I, I just can't do that. I can't say, just had scrambled eggs for breakfast. <laughs> I suppose you would have fans asking, what have you eaten for breakfast? Hmm. Yeah. And also, the, I mean, the other thing about Twitter is it's a huge mistake to read the incoming. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely devastating, the trolling. Very, very finally, um, there is talk in the wind of a third Bridget Jones film. Have you heard anything, or is that in the wind? No, well, they they did want to make it, uh, and this was a few years ago, and uh, the script wasn't bad, but it wasn't quite there. Mm. So I said, oh, it needs more work, needs more work, needs more work, and this went on for quite a long time. And then finally I said, well, I don't think it is quite there, so I think count me out. And then... Uh, but I don't know, I saw Eric Fellner from Working Title the other day and he said they, they are going to make it, but they'll find a way to do it without me. And I, that's probably a good thing, fresh blood. I suppose so. Have you read the third book? The book, you see, is significantly different right. from the uh, screenplay. Okay. It's a different story altogether, and it's brilliant, the book. Okay, time now for the reviews, and let's start with the rewrite, because, you know, screenplay structure would seem to demand it. Ali, tell me more. This movie is set in Binghamton University, which just so happens to be the place that the writer and director, Mark Lawrence, where he went to university. It is this Mark Lawrence character that has brought us two weeks' notice. He wrote and directed that. Music and lyrics, he wrote and directed that. And Did You Hear About the Morgans, all starring Hugh Grant. They're obviously best buds. And this movie, the rewrite, has both Hugh Grant and another group of very good acting talent like it's an impressive cast without a shadow of a doubt Hugh Grant Marisa Tomei Alison Janney previously mentioned on the podcast uh, J.K. Simmons uh, and Chris Elliott who we like who maybe isn't the biggest deal but we like very much it tells the story of Hugh Grant's uh, well guess what screenwriter a bit like Mark Lawrence you might imagine who can't get a gig he can't sell a script he keeps pitching the same idea and for some reason the guys who make movies these studios don't want to make that movie that he keeps pitching they all want movies with kick-ass women in. Doesn't seem to be all that prevalent uh, these days, but apparently it is in this world. So he decides, just to make ends meet, to go to Binghamton University to teach, to be the writer in residence at this university, to teach kids, uh, to teach young adults, rather, how to write scripts. And that'll be his job for a year. Pays the bills, keeps them going, keeps the lights on, all that good stuff. He's also got to deal with the problem of his son, who he hasn't spoken to for a while, and his wife, who he hasn't spoken to uh, for even longer, I think. And... This is an Oscar-winning screenwriter who wrote one huge smash called... Helen, remind me the name of it. Um, Paradise, Paradise Misplaced. That's it, which is about angels. And he wrote that back in the 90s, and now it's much, much later. And people still love that film, they still love him for that film. But he wrote two or three other movies, and they weren't as well-received. And he's kind of dealing with his ego collapsing in on itself. Without the ability to be feeling good about what he does, he feels like maybe he can't teach. But really, that exhibits itself in him being a bit of an arse. He's a bit of a bit of a prat that just kind of tells people, you're rubbish, you can't be taught, there's no way of teaching talent, you just have to be good. That's what I am, that's what you aren't. Suck it. But 
as he meets Marisa Tomei, who is a... Mature student, Yeah, that's the word yeah. I'm looking for, yeah, mature student. Um, I wouldn't say... I just feel like that's such a strange term. But she's there, and she's lovely. She's charming and sparky and fun. And they, surprise, surprise, have some sort of connection. But things are more complicated than that, and I won't go into it too much. But it is a light, fun little movie that doesn't show too much money on the screen, I might say. It is set in a rainy part of upstate New York, and it does play about with the idea of it raining a lot. I didn't necessarily love this film, but I did enjoy it. I use this phrase sometimes on the podcast. I would recommend it to my mum, and I mean that in a weird way I just know that she would love it so I don't feel like I can hate it it's not as funny as it should be and I feel like as every hoary old journalist will say about this movie that it does itself a disservice by calling itself the rewrite because it is one of those movies that could have been funnier and could have maybe have done with a rewrite Helen and I were joking as we left the screening that maybe you know you shouldn't call your movie this sort of thing you shouldn't call your movie one star or disaster area or give it a miss or why bother but rewrite seems to be just on the fence of acceptable movie naming when it could be easily turned into yeah. a bad insult but there is some I mean there's definitely I would I would kind of agree with you I think overall we gave it three stars and I think that's fair I um, I probably enjoyed it slightly more than you did I think it's fair to say the supporting cast are excellent J.K. Simmons and Alison Janney in particular are absolutely wonderful in this get nice little characters without much screen time but just nice little beats yeah. to play and Hugh Grant is, is really good actually he's a sort of a slightly it's a sadder sack version of the kind of character he, pl- he played in About a Boy and things like that he, he doesn't have even that kind of cool in this one and and he he plays it very very well so yeah three stars is probably fair but um you know if it's a rainy day in binghampton or wherever you are it's probably worth a go next we have uh, a slightly better film i think it's fair to say the northern irish based thriller 71 in which jack o'connell's young british squaddy is separated from his unit in belfast at the height of the troubles the year of the title and that turns out to be a very bad idea what can you tell me phil well um you've pretty much you've pretty much encapsulated it. it's a it's a very simple premise um it's kind of predominantly a chase movie uh, after you see that jack o'connell's uh, trooper getting separated in, in this in this riot in um, on the wrong side of the wrong side of the Falls Road, I guess. They're in a Catholic area and they're not popular. They're getting stoned. They're helping the RUC arrest a. We should say stoned in the sense of having stones thrown at them, not in the sense of you know. They're not. No, up no, a, they're a not. They're, no, exactly. They're not doing Cheech and Chong. They are getting. They're getting stuff lobbed at them. They get chased. One of uh, the guy that he's with gets shot in the head by a couple of. A couple of, uh, I guess, sort of what extreme IRA guys. Yeah, because, because IRA. the film, this film is all about the nuance of the different, the different kind of dramatic persona. I guess that you know you've got the army on the one hand who are a little naive and a bit out of their depth. You've got these guys within the army who are like they're the good guys but they're bad. Then you've got the bad guys who are bad and the bad guys that are even worse. And then another lot of bad guys. The Protestant Catholic paramilitary organisations, the British Army, and these shady guys, played by Sean Harris and his team, who basically go after him. And it's set really over the course of one night. And when the sun goes down, the film comes a lot comes to life. Uh, Jack O'Connell is terrific in everything at the moment. He's a very talented actor, and he's very good at kind of non-verbally communicating emotions. Yeah. You know, it would be easy for him to go through this film looking panic-stricken, but he com- communicates more than that. You know, the desire to survive in a very sort of primal situation, uh, to try and conquer his fear and to deal with some of the horrors that he sees, build, you know, very short but but important for him relationships mm. with different characters. It's directed by Yann Demange, who is a first-time filmmaker, but a long-time commercial and short filmmaker. And he's he's done a really great job here I think it's a really interesting film it draws on we just to give a plug to a piece on the website at the moment 
we spoke to him about this thing that he put together called a tone book before he started production where he invited his heads of department to contribute films, music, pictures that they could draw on to get a sense of what the film might be. And you, you probably, if you, once you've seen it, won't be surprised to hear that John Carpenter's films and music uh, were an influence for David Holmes's score. And also um, Battle for Algiers, like the Paul Greengrass Bloody Sunday movie, is a touch point. And uh, Melville's great Army of Shadows uh, was an influence as well, because I think it's a film, it's a thriller, but it's got a lot of humanity and a lot of human drama in it as well. Mm. We gave it four stars uh, and a strong recommendation. Yeah, I, I, as a Northern Irish person, I just want to chip in here because I was a bit worried about this, that it would be, you know, slightly non-nuance. And if anything, I think it's too nuanced. I think it does actually portray some of the complexity of the troubles. I mean, on one hand, you have riots in the streets and, and people running around with guns. On the other hand, you have people leaving their doors unlocked at night um, because they trust their neighbours. So it's, you know, that's very well portrayed. The fact that there were two sides in the Northern Irish, you know, troubles is, is well portrayed. My only criticism of the film really is, and I agree with pretty much everything that Phil said, is that I think in order to keep the chase going, um, it begins to feel a little bit contrived. I think if it had been a very, very straight, almost real-time chase, I think it might have felt even stronger because I feel like when when we start getting into some of the political angles, it actually loses focus on the Jack O'Connell character, who's who's brilliant. I would agree with that. In, in a sense, it's sort of slightly oversophisticated in trying to show yeah. all sides of this thing. It's only ninety nine minutes long. That's Army true. of Shadows is two and a half hours, uh, and it's you know it's a lot of complexity to to get into this. Um, but but yeah, if, you know, worth a somewhere between Battle of Algiers and Water Hills, The Warriors is this movie. And if you like the idea of that, you'll enjoy this. Definitely. Uh, next, it's time for another film about running, uh, The Maze Runner, which is another young adult adaptation where bad things happen to beautiful teens in a slightly post-apocalyptic world. What can you tell me about this one? There are some people who live in an area called the Glade. You'll have heard all about this when we were talking to Kaya earlier, but just to reiterate there are some young men who live in a Glade, and the Glade is inside a square, large square with huge, massive, bigger than you could possibly imagine, humongous walls inside these walls are some trees and some grassland and an area to live. Up through a hatch comes occasionally food and supplies from a mysterious source, you don't know why you don't know where it's from and also, every month, is this right? A new boy comes up, joins the society that's created here. Inside, the maze. You see, that's why it's called the maze. Right? To explain further, there, are, there is a door that opens up to the maze, and you can go out of this glade area and run around, and there are big bad beasties, these massive spider things that kind of come at people. And in order to work out how to escape, these kids venture into the maze realise that the light's coming down and the door's going to shut and then get lost and have to come back and they're constantly trying to map out the maze and work out where they are and work out the secret of where they where they came from because they have no memory. It's all this white clean, you arrive in this area just like being born at the age of 12, 13, 14 and suddenly you're here. Things get a bit different when uh, a new boy comes up and he has some sort of memory. He seems to be important. Things change when he's there. It seems like things are going to be different and that's where the movie starts you see a new character called Tom is this right? Yeah Thomas um, played by Dylan O'Brien He's very good Dylan O'Brien he's uh, in uh, Teen Wolf uh, which is a show that's not that popular in the UK but it's doing well in the US he's uh, a star he's going to be really very big uh, he's a very charming guy I interviewed all of the cast uh, for video interviews which you can check out on the site and it's got the likes of Will Poulter 
who we've talked to obviously about this movie when he came to the live show the 100th episode we did uh, and he's really really good in it he plays this kind of brute character this wrestler type and uh, Amal Amin who's fantastic too there's another interview with him on the website too it's an impressive concept it's a very mysterious very well shot delicately done mystery Hunger Games style young adult movie that doesn't belie its 33 million dollar budget it looks good it looks yeah. good. It looks it looks swish. The problem, I think, you're going to echo my thoughts here, Helen, is that it asks a lot of questions and doesn't answer that many of them. And when it does, they feel unsatisfactory. No matter how much you enjoy the characters, how much you enjoy the actors, Kai Scottolario's character comes up even later than Thomas's, uh, Thomas does, and she changed things even more. There's a girl, oh my God. It's just too full of question marks, and there aren't enough exclamation marks. I would agree with that. I think it's it's a flaw carried over entirely from the books, I would say, which are entertaining, but the book, in fact, both the two first books and to an extent the third finish on cliffhangers and therefore you're kind of left with that structure and you have to deal with it. The problem is, I think, uh, similarly to Divergent, the the central mystery that the characters have to solve is is the entire premise of the film and therefore you can't solve it all in the first film because then you have nowhere to go for the sequels um and to an extent that's true here as well the, the sequel is obviously already in development and uh, i'm sure it will be uh, with us soon but yeah that it feels a little bit unsatisfactory because of that um but yeah really good performances from all the cast i think uh wes ball the, the first timer director with this has tried to give it a real touch of kind of um uh, almost like an indie sensibility, a sort mm. of a, a you know there are moments of calm between the storms here that that play really nicely, uh, but it's it's not quite as good as a Hunger Games for my money. We give it three stars anyway. You'll enjoy it as you watch it, but you will leave with a few chin scratching moments. And last but not least, there is Annabelle, which is the spin-off prequel to The Conjuring. I'm afraid correct? to say it probably is the least. If you remember the, the, in The Conjuring, uh, there was a kind of a cameo from a, a creepy doll. Looks a bit like a cross between Daryl Hannah and a zombie. He's been dead a very <laughs> long time. Pretty creepy. And so The Conjuring has done very well. And this, uh, the doll has got her own movie, which is a prequel set in the 60s. Now, it's not directed by James Wan, who did The Conjuring. This is directed by John Leonetti, who you'll know as the director of The Butterfly Effect 2. <laughs> There's um, a butterfly effect too. He was also there is there is. Don't play the fool, Phil. Come on, Phil. There were, he was also a cinematographer on Child's Play Three, which oh, may wow. or may not be why he got this gig. Although uh, one of the things interesting things about this movie is that Annabelle the doll does not you don't see it moving or running around or doing anything. It just sort of sits there creepily. Um, it might have been a bit more scary had the doll actually done something. Maybe it would have just looked silly. I don't know. But anyway, it's uh, it starts promisingly because uh, it is set in the 60s and there are weird Satanist cultists, sort of Manson-style creepy people about. Um, it's about a young couple. She's pregnant. Yeah, there's a bit of a Rosemary's Baby vibe. Uh, she's actually called Mia and he's called John after the two leads of that film. Um, and it starts quite... The first sort of 20 minutes is quite exciting and then for me it got quite boring quite quickly. Lots of cheap jump scares and a lot of cliches, haunted house movie cliches. I'm just a little bit tired of the, the whole haunted house demon kind of genre, subgenre that's developed and this is definitely the weakest one that's been for a while. And uh, yeah, Patrick Wilson and Verma, Vera Vermeer's characters from, uh, they play the sort of the paranormal experts in The Conjuring. They mm-hmm. do not turn up. Oh. And this movie does not actually link onto The Conjuring, so presumably there is a sequel or more than one sequel which we're going to get for this. What's the actual enemy here? The doll doesn't do anything, he just sits there and is creepy. Is it demons, you're saying? 
the there there's a couple of things. There's a demon, and the doll is alive, but you don't see it doing anything. But it starts Ooh. moving. It moves around. Uh, you know, the, there's a rocking chair moving on its own. There's all kinds of stuff. Not as good as the Babadook. It's not as good as the Babadook. Spoiler: We haven't w- reviewed that yet. It's not as good as the Babadook. Yeah, I just I just thought it was uh, it was a kind of promising setup. I like the Conjuring quite a bit. Gave that two stars. Can I just chip in just quickly? Uh, I was just going to say, I just think it's... Uh, maybe not that interesting. Oh. I just think it's interesting that you're right about this subgenre of haunted house films that, that has sprung up and they've all been really, really popular and made a lot of money. Can, I kind of understand why they think that maybe it's the right time for a Ghostbusters movie in that context. I think what it is the time for is a sort of a Buffy the Interior Decorator movie where you would have somebody who goes into these haunted houses right and redecorates in a fashion that no self-respecting ghost would be seen dead near i'm talking yellows i'm talking flowers i'm talking pleasant colors and shapes and then i think you'd be fine because all of these haunted house movies they're all blue and grays and possibly a bit of kind of blood crimson that's the problem they don't just need to redecorate they don't help themselves don't put a creepy rocking chair in your house and don't if there's a really creepy doll don't go yes that looks great we'll have that we'll put that there you, I kind of lost sympathy with these characters almost immediately because within the, within the first ten minutes she gets this creepy doll and goes, oh, I'll just put this there. And he goes, why do you want that there? Oh, I just like creepy dolls. <laughs> and so you just go, okay. And then even after it starts doing creepy stuff, she keeps putting it back in this room. It's really annoying. So we give that two stars. That is uh, it for Annabelle. That is not a recommendation. Uh, also out this week, we have The Calling, which has an amazing cast. Susan Sarandon, Topher Grace, Ellen Burstyn and Donald Sutherland. That got three stars. Effie Gray, another amazing cast, including Emma Thompson and Dakota Fanning. That got two stars. Uh, British film Gone Too Far, also two stars. And filmed in Super Mario Nation, uh, the, the story about uh, Jerry Anderson and his production company got four stars, so that is highly recommended. That is it, however, for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by the aforementioned very funny lady Anna Faris, star of Mom, and James Marsden, star of Hashtag Justice for Cyclops and also the new Nicholas Sparks movie, The Best of Me. Until then, it's goodbye from Phil. Bye, Badook. Goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. One last game I want to be turned into a TV show is King's Quest VI. Air today, gone tomorrow. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to redecorate my creepy dungeon entirely in shades of primrose and magnolia in a way that will finally get rid of those poltergeists. See ya. See ya.